Hi, I'm Terry Woods. This is a special Christmas series and part of Texas Storytellers. Oh, you know the rest. We're brought to you by Woodlands Online. You can watch us on Woodlands Online on their Roku station. You can hear us on Spotify and iHeartRadio, Stitcher and others. And we have a special sponsor for this series, Herb and Beat. I gotta tell you, this series includes another friend of mine who is a Texas storyteller, for real. And he's done some episodes of Texas Storytellers, Mark Hader. Mark Hader has written some stories, especially for Christmas, and he is going to read them. And at times, he's even going to let his wife, Kay, read some. So, without further ado, Mark Hader and his stories. And you're going to hear Kay, too. Enjoy! This story I'm getting ready to read you uh, has no talking animals in it at all. Uh, and it's a little more somber. Christmas uh, can be somber for a lot of people. It has for me a time or two, and I'm sure it has for you. But the story is called The Road to Tucumcari. Trey was at a standoff with his mother. Neither would budge. She refused to let him spend Christmas alone, and he refused to join his parents on a drive down to Clear Lake to spend Christmas with the family. There was a time when she would have gotten her way in this exchange with her youngest, but She'd been unable to sway her boy uh, on anything since his return uh, from his fourth tour in the Middle East. Mama, please, I just don't want to be around them. I will another time, but, but not this time. Edna took her son's hand and said, Trey, darling, they're your family. They love you, and, and you'll be so missed. Trey said nothing more. He sat on the edge of his bed and stared straight ahead into nothing. It had become a comfortable pose for him, one that generally ended whatever lecture had been directed at him. Trey's dad walked in and quickly picked up on the fact that his wife was again trying to uh, uh, conduct the old perk-up Trey train. It couldn't be done. There wasn't enough sympathy, empathy, and uh, encouragement or parental love that could make the boy see even a glimmer of hope in his screwed-up mind. Honey, leave him alone, he said. We can't fix him. It aggravates him when we try. The man looked down at his son and said, Trey, you do whatever you want, son. No pressure. If you'll feel better not being with family, by all means, don't see him. I'm sorry I pushed you into showing up for last year's Thanksgiving. That was a, a downer uh, and a half. So stay here or don't. Short of prayer, we can't do a thing for you. But we're your mom and dad and we'll always be here for you until we're not. Edna left the room crying. She did uh, that a lot. Trey looked up to see his father shaking his head. I'm sorry, Dad, Trey said before leaving the room. His father said, I am too. I'm sick and tired of it too. Trey left a note on his dresser for his mom to find when they returned from their Christmas trek. He wrote, Mama, I am so sorry that I'm broken. For now, I'm, I'm taking a little trip to some place that's not here. I'm just going to look around and take it easy. Please don't be mad at Daddy. He tried as long as he could, and please keep praying for me. 
I haven't been able to do that for a long time. I, I just don't want to hurt people anymore. I love you, Mama. I don't deserve you. T. Trey drove his Jeep Cherokee north. The vehicle was the only thing of value he possessed. His Army disability check made it possible for him to buy and maintain it, and he had a little left over to pay his father's rent for the room and board. He had kept the uh, Cherokee in perfect running order, which was now particularly important because he intended to drive north from Huntsville until he was stopped by the snow. In Afghanistan, he had been stopped by snow many times while on reconnaissance in the foothills. Trey had been a spotter on a sniper team. His job was to locate targets and maintain a visual to make sure the person or persons had been dispatched. He was also responsible for protecting the shooter. In a firefight, an assault rifle was preferable to a sniper's rifle. Every night since uh, his discharge, he was back in the thick of things the minute he closed his eyes. He was always running or yelling or falling or killing. And always he was scared. Scared of dying, of course, but mostly scared that he might make a mistake that would get his friends killed. To him, it was the biggest fear of war. The snow began falling when he reached Amarillo. He stopped for gas on the outskirts of the city and grabbed a candy bar and a large bag of Fritos. While waiting in line by the cash register, he took a peek at a map and noticed that if he kept going north, he would uh, have to cross the Oklahoma Panhandle. He wondered uh, how Oklahoma ended up with such a narrow panhandle, just sitting there on top of the Texas Panhandle. Made no sense. So he um, headed west out of Amarillo, and before too long, he saw a highway sign with the post half buried in snow. The sign read, Tucum Carry. The distance in miles was unreadable. He couldn't remember where he was when he first heard the song. He remembered how odd he thought it was for a girl, Linda Ronstadt, to sing it. To sing a truck driving song? I've been from Tucson to Tucumcari, Tachapita, Tonopah. Driven every kind of rig that's ever been made. Driven the back roads so I wouldn't get weighed. Tucumcari. Sounded mysteriously appropriate. Unfortunately, the further he drove, the more snow. The interstate got so bad that he exited and got on Route 66, which pretty much paralleled the interstate in several places along the way. He hadn't seen any cars coming or going, and there was no hint of any lights in the distance. He thought, forget Tucumcari. This'll do. The snow was piling up alongside the road. He didn't want to leave his Jeep in a place that anyone would uh, readily find it. He hoped it would be invisible until early spring and someone would do him a favor and steal it. He hoped his body would never be found, out of sight, out of mind. Everyone would be better off. Time has a way of healing all wounds for some while intensifying pain for others. Trey slowly crept along 66 until he spotted what he suspected was a road shooting off to the north. He took a gamble that the Jeep could handle the cutoff and made a slow turn. Sure enough, all things were working for good. They got even better when he spied a wooded area, a wooded area and a treeless prairie. God was obviously helping him along. He pulled the Jeep into a narrow path through the woods, hoping to keep it out of sight. He exited the car, leaving his keys in the ignition. With this army-issued flashlight, he walked the path. By the way, that army-issue comment was an attempt at humor. He exited the car, leaving his keys in the ignition. 
with his army-issued flashlight, he walked the path. The army wasn't big on issuing anything other than the absolute necessities, body armor, gloves, sunshades, flashlights, specialized winter boots. If you wanted anything like that, it was up to you or your family to procure them. Night vision goggles? The powers that be considered them essential for sniper teams. How wise. Since after his first tour of duty, Trey had vainly attempted to get the war out of his mind, he felt a moment of joy in the thought of losing his mind to all thoughts. As he stumbled along, he happened on a narrow path that angled off the road. The trail seemed to beckon him. It all seemed so easy. He aimed the beam of light in the direction of a path, but only for a second before turning off the flashlight and staring into the dark. Had he been in the hills of Afghanistan, he would have been shot the minute he set foot on the road. Just weird as it could be, he thought. He didn't know how long he had been standing there before he saw it. A light shone from somewhere just beyond the pathway. He figured someone had pulled onto the road just beyond the wooded area. Somebody might have noticed his flashlight's beam and developed uh, thoughts of investigating. The disturbance pretty much ruined the mood for him. He walked back to his Jeep and, with the headlights off, slowly made his way back to 66. The snowfall had picked up considerably. It wasn't long before a few cars headed on the opposite direction passed by on the interstate. He thought it a pretty good indication that the highway was blocked up ahead. It never fails, he said to himself. You try to do one good thing and it all goes haywire. At that point, Route 66 veered away from the interstate and just as he spotted a slight glow up ahead. It turned out to be a mom and pop motel. Maybe he was closer to Tucumcari than he thought. And maybe there was a cafe next to the motel. He wasn't thinking of room, just a meal. He had uh, given up on finding a hiding. Just stop, get some coffee, and enjoy a meal of something other than Fritos. Afterward, he would leave his Jeep at the cafe and slog his way across the snow to a spot where he could kneel and dispatch himself. There would be no I'm sorry note. He knew he more than deserved death, and he knew he was uh, through trying to sleep in the sleep that always opened the door to hell of his dreams. Yep, he had it all planned. This was the way to do it. Only it wasn't. There was no cafe next to the motel. There was barely a motel. Four rooms attached to a lighted office. One car was parked next to the last room. Why don't I just shoot myself, Trey said. Then he walked up to the office where he found the door locked. He banged on the door frame because the door itself didn't look like it could stand much banging. He knocked for a pretty good while before an unshaven, gruff-looking, middle-aged guy pulled the door open and met him with an expression that looked less than cordial. What do you want? The man said. Trey asked him where the nearest cafe was. The guy told him nothing was open. Trey asked the man if he would mind preparing him something to eat that he'd pay him royally. He then eased his way past the man and walked to the counter. The man said, stop right there. I've got no food and I've got no room, so just get your vehicle and go somewhere where they've got both. Trey looked at the lone car at the far side of the parking lot and assured the clerk that there were at least three vacant rooms. The man touched something in his pocket and he stared at Trey. He was obviously plotting his best course of action. He then broke his stare and walked behind the counter where he started looking for the room keys. Trey pointed to a peg directly behind the guy. The man reached over and grabbed key 11 and tossed it to Trey. Trey said, wow, four rooms and one of them is 11? The clerk said, don't push it, bub. 
you can fill out the form later, but you've uh, got to pay before you go out the door. I mean, eighty. Uh, I mean, a hundred dollars in cash. Cray dug through his pocket before handing over five twenties. The man smiled, being surprised the kid was so willing to pay. Having found a little more confidence, the clerk said, "Oh, I'm also going to need your car keys." Without any expression on his face, Trey looked deep into the clerk's eyes and then nodded slightly. A pang of doubt gripped the man right in his gut, causing him to reach under the counter for something that he hoped would make the stranger think he had a shotgun. Trey pretended to take no notice. He simply turned to walk out the door, but the man warned him. Stop. The warning had no effect. Hold it, or I swear I will kill you, the man said. They say you never hear the shot that kills you, but uh, there are likely no witnesses to confirm that. Trey was not worried in the least. He just walked out to his Jeep, opened the passenger side door. He then reached under the seat and found his partial bag of Fritos. He stuffed them into his jacket pocket, closed the door, and then walked back to the motel office. When he re-entered the office, the man had a twenty-two pistol pointed at him. He had the firearm turned sideways, thinking it would make him look tougher. Okay, I need you to hand over the pistol or knife or whatever it is you got in, uh, out of your car, the man said. Trey reached into his pocket and pulled out a crumpled bag of partial eaten Fritos. That's very funny, the man said, but you look like a guy with a gun. I'll have it, and I'll have it now. Trey put his hand in his other jacket pocket and pulled out a set of keys. He then calmly removed the Jeep key from the ring and laid it on the counter. That's good. Now the gun, the man said. Without dropping his stare into the man's eyes, in one fluid motion, Trey pulled an M1911 pistol from inside his coat and immediately had it pointed right at the man's face. The man dropped his twenty-two on the counter and yelled, Don't shoot! Don't shoot! See, I, I, I put the gun down. That's wise, Trey said. Right now I need you to slowly walk around the counter and stand right over yonder facing me. If you look in the least suspicious... You're dead. In fact, if you hurt the owner of this establishment, you may make yourself dead anyway. No, no, I haven't hurt anybody. The, the couple is sitting in the kitchen keeping quiet because I told them that I would shoot you if, if they made a sound. Not that I, I really would shoot you. It was uh, just to make sure that uh, Trey yelled, Are y'all okay back there? The gray-bearded, fragile old man's head peeked from behind the doorway. Yes, sir, uh, we're fine. Trey told the robber that he could take his Jeep and keep the hundred dollars he had given him for the room, but that he needed to return the money he had stolen from the owner. Without pausing to think or even blink, the robber laid the money on the top of the bar next to the twenty-two. He then looked up and asked Trey why he was letting him get away, and why was he letting him have his car? Trey said, that's one good question. Why would you take time to ask me that? Now you've got me rethinking the situation. The robber looked even more frightened than before. Trey told him that he didn't shoot him. Trey told him that he didn't shoot him because uh, you made the right choice by putting the pistol down. He said, if you hadn't, I would have ended you. And your sad, pathetic face would join several dozen more that keep robbing me of sleep. I'll bet you never thought that uh, your death would carry that much power. The robber had no clue whatsoever. Right, he said and nodded. Trey uh, didn't nod, but he did explain to the man that he needed to shift the Jeep into four-wheel drive before leaving the parking lot. 
It doesn't stay in four-wheel drive after you put it in park, he said. By, by the way, how about tossing me the keys to your car? The man grinned. There are no keys. I hot-wired the thing. Are, are you sure you want to give me your car? Trey maintained his stare. It's a Jeep Cherokee, sir, and I've got to warn you again to quit asking stupid questions. Just go! The man smiled and said, I read you. I appreciate your not killing me. He then hurried out the door, not wanting to upset the uh, crazy guy any more than he had to. Uh, the robber made sure the door was completely closed so the wind wouldn't force it open and startle the kid with the big pistol. He then uh, climbed into the Cherokee and exited the parking lot, headed east. Janet and Sid Taylor just about hugged Trey to death. Janet was in tears and still somewhat in shock. However, she regained a bit of composure upon remembering that Trey had asked the robber to cook him a meal. Oh, my word, she said, and then hurried him into her kitchen and seated him at a small tile-top table. For the first time in too long, Trey felt a hint of joy. Without even thinking, he had actually done something that mattered to someone, and no uh, one even got hurt. He pushed himself away from the table a second after he got seated, explained to the tailors that they were safe now that the man would be picked up somewhere along the side of the road between there and Amarillo. Janet told Trey to sit back down and uh, that he was going to stay with them for the night. Trey assured her that he was not, that he ne uh, never really intended to stay at the motel. He was just going to meet a friend in town. He only stopped to stretch his legs. Sid, her husband, said, No, son, Janet's going to warm something up for you, and you're going to stay right here with us. Your imaginary friend in town can wait. Trey didn't want to make a fuss. More than that, he really didn't, did hate to lead the elderly couple after they had been through such a horrible evening. Yes, he would sit in the plump chair in the living area and watch over them through the night. He knew he wouldn't sleep a wink all night. Hey, he was used to staying awake and perfectly still for hours while staring at numerous mountain passes that snaked through rocky uh, terrain. During the meal, Trey did little talking, but listened to the life and times of Janet and Sid. They were so pleasant to be around, they, they seemed genuinely concerned about him and, and didn't want to make him feel uncomfortable about having to carry on a conversation, so they kept their questions to a minimum. Both of them liked him just the way he was. It was their peace and calmness toward him that enabled Trey to lessen a bit of hate he had for himself. He didn't recall actually going to the living area and sitting down in a plump chair, but he apparently did because he woke up with Sid practically laying across him and Janet trying to calm him down. The expression on Trey's face was just downright evil, but Sid didn't flinch. After about a minute, Trey had calmed and then he cried like a child. I am so sorry, Mr. Taylor. Did, it, did I hurt you? Sid assured him he had not. Trey patted uh, Sid's shoulder, letting him know that he could release his grip. I need to uh, go outside for a little while. That, that's what I, I do when I get like this. You, you don't want to be around me. Just, just let me go. He didn't wait for any further nagging. He grabbed his jacket, making sure they hadn't removed his pistol, and proceeded in the direction of the door. I'll just go outside, and, and you all go to sleep. I, I'm fine. I, I'm so sorry. I never thought I'd be able to fall asleep that easily. You, you don't want to be around me right now. Janet took Trey's hand, at which point he felt a calmness that allowed him to let her guide him to the couch. She told him to lie down. No, ma'am. 
No, ma'am, I, I do appreciate it, but uh, let me go, okay? The woman gently pushed Trey back and told him to lie down so he wouldn't have witnessed the bad side of her. Um, yes, ma'am, you're, 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 you pretty much got me uh, scared to death, he said. Sugar, get me a pillow and blanket, she said to her husband. This is not necessary, Trey said. Sid came in and forced a pillow behind Trey's head while his wife covered him with a blanket. Shh, close your eyes, son, the old woman told him. Then she spoke. Our Father in Heaven, thank you for Trey, for bringing him to us when you did. Thank you for always watching out for us. Right now, I ask that you place your hand on this boy's heart and remove the pain that's weighing him down. Please let him sleep the sleep of the blessed. The next thing Trey heard was Janet singing. Softly and tenderly, Jesus is calling, calling for you and for me. Trey slept the sleep of the blessed. He had no bad dreams that night. It was the first time in forever that he had shut his eyes that long without a nightmare. Trey called home the day after Christmas. His mom cried upon hearing his voice. Mama, I'm okay, Trey told her. I spent the night with some new friends near Tucumcari. What? Uh, new Mexico, Mama. How was Christmas? Trey listened to his mother tell him how much she had missed... Uh, at the family gathering that everyone had asked about him. Trey told his mother that he was going to stay with the family at the motel, the, the Taylors, for a short while, that there was a VA hospital in Albuquerque and he was going to get on their waiting list. They talked and laughed for a good while. Before hanging up, Trey said, Mama, tell Daddy I'm okay and that, well, that I, I'm glad he said my name in his prayers. The Oklahoma Highway Patrol found Trey's Jeep in the panhandle of Oklahoma, just south of liberal Kansas. Clarence Stang was identified by his prints, which were all over the interior of the Jeep. Stang was never located. Trey hoped that the man was all right. He even whispered a short prayer for him. It felt so awkward for him to pray. His prayers were short, but his trust was growing. Janet told him that he was uh, their Christmas miracle. Trey wanted to believe that, but he wasn't quite there yet. What he did know was that for the first time in too many years, he had been captured by a feeling of hope. He had been chasing it for so long that he had given up looking. In time, he came to believe that God had been waiting for him to come to the end of the line before letting his presence be known. It happened one Christmas night at an old motel somewhere along the road to Tucumcari. Thank you. Merry Christmas. Hello. I'm Kay Hader, and I'm going to read you a short story from a book called Christmas Storybook Stories by Mark Hader. Mark Hader, my husband. And this story is called The Gift Twice Given. Mrs. Allen hadn't planned to see another Christmas. It was never her intention to live quite so long after her husband passed. As she sat in her favorite place next to the large window in the corner of the lobby, she remembered joking with Ross about which one of them would go first. That was several years ago when she had health, hope, and her best friend. Now all she had was time. Time to think of better times. Eventually, someone came and wheeled her to the cafeteria. She was positioned at her assigned table next to Mrs. Emery and Mr. Franks. As they sat silently waiting to be served, Molly played Christmas tunes on the piano 
just as she had done that morning at breakfast. That evening, an attendant came to Mrs. Allen's room to help her back into her wheelchair. She was taken to the lobby where most of the other residents were assembled. It was Christmas carol time with the singing provided by members from one of the local churches. Though she had grown up in the town, Mrs. Allen didn't recognize anyone. They were so nice, though. They always were. One of the women came over to talk to her, but Mrs. Allen couldn't hear all the words. Instead of constantly asking for clarification, she had learned to smile and nod. It was her way of being polite and making people think she understood. Before leaving, the kind visitor handed her a nice jar of hand cream. Soon, one of the nursing home assistants tapped Mrs. Allen on the arm and said, Are, are you ready to go back to your room, sweetheart? Mrs. Allen couldn't hear the words, but she recognized the tone. She smiled and nodded. She always seemed to hear the sweetheart at the end of most sentences. Sometimes it was honey or darling. She thought it might be nice to occasionally hear one of the attendants call her by name. However, she more than understood their manner. After all, she realized that anyone who was as dependent on others as she was should expect to be addressed as if she were a child. As she lay in bed, she prayed that she wouldn't have another bad night. The previous night, she had caught herself several times calling out for Ross. She had momentarily forgotten where she was and when she was. Over the past several months, those times had become more frequent. Once, she even called for her mother. So silly, she thought, what must they think of me? Before her near-exhausting attempt to find sleep, she reached towards her bedside table and picked up the old tarnished pocket watch that lay there. The watch had the words of love engraved on the back. She had seen her husband reach for the old watch so often that, as she placed it to her lips, she could almost feel his touch. She then set the watch back on the cabinet, closed her eyes, and fought to make her mind go numb so that sleep could more easily capture her. Eventually, the dreams appeared. They provided Mrs. Allen the only opportunity to really see faces and hear voices plainly. In her dreams, she could walk and she could laugh. She could view the world from her house on Tamar Lane. It was too soon into her dreams that Mrs. Allen's sleep was disturbed by, well, nothing of which she was aware. Her eyes suddenly focused on the image of someone reaching for an object on her bedside table. Her first impulse was to call out for the night attendant in an attempt to prevent the theft of her precious memento, but the words never came. Instead, her panic disappeared, chased out by a calmness that captured her soul. It was a peace that allowed her to look at the stranger and say, Take it, young man. It's a gift. I gave it to my husband after he graduated from law school. If you turn on the light, you may make out the name Ross. He intended to give it to our son, but the war took our Philip. Mrs. Allen paused. She hoped it was too dark for the stranger to notice her tears. Anyway, I have no family left to pass the watch along to. It's really the only thing of value I possess. It's the only gift I have to offer anyone, and I choose to give it to you. Please accept it with my blessing. The stranger picked up the watch, studying it for a brief moment before returning his attention to the dear woman. Mrs. Allen was unable to clearly see the stranger's face. 
I'm Mrs. Allen, young man, she said, and what is your name? Following a brief silence, Mrs. Allen said, How silly of me. You probably think I'm trying to trick you into telling me your name so I can tell on you. No, no, it's not that way at all. In fact, I wish I had more to give you. Like I said, there's really nothing else in the room of any value. I don't like to save things all that much. Just the watch. It's yours now. And Merry Christmas, young man. I know you're not in a good place in your life. I pray things will get better for you, that God will catch your attention somewhere along your journey. His helping hand is a mere prayer away. Mrs. Allen left it at that. She expected the figure to walk away, but he remained silent and still. Only occasionally would he let his gaze wander to the watch in his hand. After a few moments, Mrs. Allen heard a voice as clear as in her youth. I am not a thief, Patricia Allen. I am the hand of mercy, the spirit of grace, the conscience of this world's neglectful servants. I am the one who kept reminding you that you were never truly alone. And it is now, kind soul, I come to take you home. It was then that Mrs. Allen was allowed to see his face. It was a face that expressed calmness and love so vividly that Mrs. Allen, with tears in her eyes, began to smile, then to laugh. She felt near weightless, yet full of energy. Love and a sense of peace fell over her that was beyond anything she had ever witnessed or imagined. At mid-morning, an attendant came into Mrs. Allen's room, removed the sheets, and gave the place a good once-over. Usually, a family member gathered up the belongings of their loved one, but Mrs. Allen had no family. Before thoroughly cleaning the room, the attendant carefully boxed what few items remained in Mrs. Allen's room. A small box comfortably held all that Patricia Allen possessed. She had let it be known that all her possessions would be given to whomever the management thought could best use them. The manager was to contact a Mr. Joe Goodspeed to handle the will and the funeral. When the attendant walked over to retrieve the items from the small bedside table, he found nothing of worth to place inside the box except for a new jar of hand cream. The six red and green wrapped candy kisses that had been delivered by two students from the next door elementary school, he would place on the counter at the entrance of the home for anyone in need of a chocolate fix. There was a box of Kleenex and a cup of something resembling a watery punch. The small blue scarf would be kept by the attendant as a token from Mrs. Allen. His friendship with the sweet lady was a bit awkward. Mrs. Allen seldom talked and he knew she couldn't hear anything he had to say. They would just look at one another and smile. The attendant's smile was more an expression of pity than anything else, but Mrs. Allen did so appreciate it. There was no radio or old person's box of trinkets left on the nightstand, and to his surprise, there was no pocket watch. The attendant would make a note to the manager about someone misplacing the dear woman's pocket watch. Of course, there was no need, for you see, the watch was a gift twice given and twice received. Well, I'll tell you, those are some good stories. And Woodlands Online is very, very proud to bring them to you. They're also proud to have a fine sponsor, Urban Beat, 
Well, and I want to tell you a little bit more about them. So I'm going to put my spectacles on. Urban Beat partners with local farms and vendors for the freshest food possible. It's located at 448 Sawdust Road, the Woodlands, Texas, on the corner of Sawdust Road and Booty Road. Now go check them out. And come back for another episode of our special Christmas story series. Goodbye for now. Mm -hmm.